Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 7 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. I'm Jeremy Adam. On today's show, we're pleased to present a spotlight on the global TMT scene. We begin with a fireside chat with Lion Tree CEO Arie Borkoff and the father-daughter team of Gustavo and Adriana Cisneros, chairman and CEO respectively of Grupo Cisneros, the privately held multinational media and industry conglomerate. The conversation took place at this month's Emerge Americas conference in Florida. Next, we'll have a new quiz question. Be sure to listen to the end of the podcast for the answer and all the juicy details. And finally, we'll hear Ed Vasey, a member of Parliament and England's former Minister for Culture, Communications, and Creative Industries, as well as a Lion Tree entrepreneur in residence. He's talking with Founders Forum creator Brent Hoberman as they discuss the British and European startup scene. Here we go. REA hosted an engaging discussion with Gustavo and Adriana Cisneros, whose eponymous company has grown into a diversified powerhouse. They discussed the origins of their nearly century-old family business, how their partnership strategy has fueled growth into various areas, and their bullish outlook for Latin America and beyond. Thank you very much for having us. It is my real honor and pleasure to be in a position to interview and moderate a discussion with my dear friends, Gustavo Cisneros and Adriana Cisneros. So please welcome them to Emerge. Thank you very much for being here. We're gonna talk today about entrepreneurialism, family businesses, and really building a media and technology enterprise for the future. And we're gonna talk about that in a way that I think while we may recount some of the history, of this great family and the business that you've run and built, but they're very much relevant topics to discuss for today because this industry is full of family-controlled businesses, businesses in transition, technology disruption, and I think this uh, family is a great example of how you've navigated it smoothly from my perspective over the years. So just a few words about the two of you before we get started because I really am very impressed with the reach of the Cisneros Group, it's massive. The company spans over 550 million customers across 100 different countries. The Cisneros Group owns or holds interest in more than 30 companies, including Venevision, the largest TV network in Venezuela, a film and TV studio that is the largest independent producer of Spanish language programming in the U.S. and Latin America markets, the Cisneros Media Group, which distributes entertainment content globally, a real estate development firm currently building Tropicalia, a luxury resort in the Dominican Republic, and an interactive division that has acquired and grown digital advertising startups around Latin America, which we'll talk about more. Gustavo is chairman of the Cisneros Group Companies. He's on many boards. He's a mentor to myself and also is an executive in residence with Lion Tree. Gustavo succeeded his father, Diego Cisneros, at the age of 25 years old in 1970. And as chairman and CEO, Gustavo acquired the rights to the Miss Venezuela beauty pageant, which has become one of the most popular beauty pageants in the world, established and grew Venevision from Diego as Venezuela's first private TV network, and under Gustavo's leadership became the leading producer of TV content for Spanish-speaking audiences in Latin America and worldwide. And in 1992, Gustavo, along with Jerry Perenquio and Emilio Ascaraga, launched Univision, 
obviously the first Spanish language media company in the US. In 1995, he partnered with the Hughes Electronics Corporation to launch DirecTV Latin America, the first all digital direct to home satellite TV service in Latin America. And he, along with his wonderful wife, Patty, are very philanthropic. That is a trait that he's passed on and they've passed on to Adriana, as we will, we will discover. Adriana became the CEO of the company at the age of 33 years old in 2013. Before that, she worked at the company for eight years, really building and expanding the digital, mobile, online advertising networks, e-commerce, and social gaming areas. She has now overseen the company and established it into three divisions. One is the media division, two is the real estate division, and three is the interactive division, with additional businesses and consumer products and services. And Adriana notably became Facebook's first reseller in the Americas after it was named Facebook's official reseller in Ecuador, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Venezuela. She also is deeply involved in philanthropy and has prioritized social responsibility over anything else and is a co-founder with Manny of Endeavor Miami, which is a nonprofit that supports high-impact entrepreneurship in this area and has a real passion for the region. So quite accomplished in many different ways, not just in building media businesses. So Gustavo, take us back to the story of your father. Don Diego Cisneros, a pioneer in business. And when he started the company, it was like the Wild West. Talk about how he had the idea of starting the Cisneros Group and what you learned from him. First of all, thank you. He's a good friend and he shows it. To come down to Miami and do this interview means a lot for me and not for Adriana. Pleasure. Thank you again. My father was a force of nature. He arrived in Venezuela. Oil had come in 1920s. It was the Wild West. Everything was open. Everything had to be done. There were roads. There was no infrastructure. There were no media. There was nothing but opportunity. So he stayed. Was able to have his mother co-sign an IOU for one truck. That truck, transportation truck, became 200 trucks. And then we came 400, and they changed it to buses. Then they sold it. So he went and got Pepsi-Cola, which when he tasted it, tasted like hell. He hated medicine. And it was really medicine. As you... So he, he took it back with his brother, but that became the largest distribution business in the world. When he retired, my brother and my cousin Osvaldo and I took over, we realized that that was the end of his dream because Pepsi-Cola didn't realize that the value of the family. So we began to look around and we saw that Coca-Cola really wanted to partner with us. And then we partnered with Coca-Cola. Uh, that was big news then. And it was the right move for the family because we were able to grow out of Venezuela. And we did the same thing. With the same team of people, we went from number one in Pepsi-Cola to being number one in Coca-Cola. I think as an entrepreneur, it's unusual to do two things that Diego did at starting the company. One is to start a company through partnership, yep. to bring in a partnership with Pepsi-Cola, and two is to do it in a global scale. He was one of the first to really move outside of Venezuela to Brazil and other markets and create more of a global perspective of that partnership. He continued doing that when he went into the television business in Venezuela. There was a, a network called Televisa. I was having great many problems. He was able to buy it. I went with him in a trip. 
he talked to Leonard Goldenson, who was chairman of ABC, American Broadcasting Corporation in New York City. Leonard said, what do you need, Diego? I said, well, he says, I want to be in this business. I don't know anything about it, but can you help me? And they took 20%. So we had all the backing of ABC, plus all the contracts, plus all the know-how. And I was able to train with in Leonard's office. It's not so easy today, but that's the sort of thing that he was able to do. Adriano, we're going to get to the chronology of it all, but is that underlying DNA still in the company about working in partnership, focusing on brands, having a global perspective? Absolutely. I don't think I'm doing anything differently than what my grandfather started doing and what my father continued doing. There's actually been very little innovation in our strategy even though our company is almost 90 years old. The way that we structured our interactive business, even though you might think is very different, where we've been building what today is the largest digital ad network in Latin America, which ultimately led us to become Facebook's only reseller in the world, not only in Latin America, is I used the basic architecture from the deals that I studied that my father was putting together in the 80s and the 90s and the 70s that he was basing on the architecture from the deals that my grandfather was putting together in the 30s and the 40s. And Adriana, when you think about building the company now, do you easily think about new areas of growth, like obviously the real estate area or other areas that you've developed since you took over? I do, because when I see of our, I see our history. So, yeah, you know, my grandfather built... Benevision, which at the time was the sixth TV network in the world. You know, it was pretty early to do that privately. And then my father took that knowledge and he ended up helping the Santo Domingos build Caracol in Colombia. And then he went to Chile and he built in Chile the first national TV networks because the Chileans hadn't figured out how to deal with the mountain range. But he did it with this team of phenomenal engineers. And from there, he decided to do Univision in the United States. And with that knowledge, he went into the satellite business by launching DirecTV in all of Latin America. And I grew up seeing this sort of approach to going big early and always betting very large in Latin America. That's the script that we followed. So when we started talking about possibly me taking over the company, was he was giving me a lot of space to map out the kind of company that I wanted to run. And one of the areas that I noticed that was really interesting to me was this whole digital space. And we started having this conversation about there's a lot of digital traffic out there. And the insights we were having about digital traffic came because we understood the media business really well. It was just moving onto a different kind of platform. And we started talking about how can we set up a company that helps us monetize all this digital traffic, both in the U.S. Hispanic market, which was the market that we understood because of Univision, and if we're going to do it in Univision, how can we set up a company that also helps us monetize all this digital traffic in Latin America? So it became very clear what we needed to do. And we set up a new vertical called Cisneros Interactive that is very focused and specializes in being able to do that. Growing up, I was glued to my father. Same as Adriana is glued to me. Crazy it, glue. It, <laughs> somehow, it works. Yeah, well, when you have a strong foundation of both an entrepreneurial gene and a family trust together, you can have a longer-term perspective. And I want to talk about being an entrepreneur within a family business a little bit, because, Gustavo, you were one of 
eight children. And you were number four. You were number four out of eight, right in the middle. And when you were 25 years old, your father said, we'd like for you to be the new CEO of the business. So were you thinking at the time, why me? Uh, correct. I mean, I told father I, I really didn't want to do it. I wanted to go on my own. But he had got uh, sick. But he was you know, in a very good frame of mind, and it was a family decision. And we all agreed on it. So I was expected to take it. But I did happily, and we then began to grow in the United States. And that was an immense step. We bought a company called All American, the 10th largest bottling company here. And we did extremely well. We, I did it with Teddy Forsman, one of the first private equity deals. And then we bought a company called uh, Spalding, which we made it into the no, number one company in the world, which wasn't. And a company called Evenflow, which was the number two or three baby products company, and we made it into the first one. We transferred all the assets to China, one of the first uh, American Chinese deals, and that worked very well. So we had that immense capacity to also to grow and to come to the United States and to be part of the American, North American footprint, Canada, United States, Latin America. Where did you get the skill set to be the CEO? I mean, at a young age, did your father give you any lessons or did you automatically say we have to well, continue I was, to grow? Thinking back, I was glued to him. I saw everything he did. I used to be his shadow, his secretary. Without really realizing, I was on the story. Of course, in the genes, obviously, but we had very capable brothers. So it was my father who picked me. I had no choice. So what he saw in me, that I was going to have the capacity to be patient, to be a leader for the long term, and to take everybody's opinion into consideration. Family helps. Uh, because I have a, a real deep feel about family. I think Adriana also has that. How did that inform your decision to pass the torch and the mantle to Adriana at the age of 33? And she's the youngest of three and the only woman in, among her siblings and had to be obviously taking it on at a young age as well. How did you think about well, that decision? I wanted to do it earlier. And actually, Adriana had this discussion three years earlier and said, I said, no, I'm not ready yet. It was a three-year conversation that we had in secret. Him and I and our former CEO, Steve Bundell, had this three-year conversation to see whether I was ready or not to take the job. And during this conversation, what I said was, listen, let's do this. Let me become director of strategy, which was a position that we invented. It had never existed in our company. And it was amazing because it gave me full access to every meeting and every company that we had. No one felt threatened because no one had the slightest idea what it was that I was supposed to be doing. But in those three years, it gave me all the insights that I needed to be able to present to my father and Stephen without knowing if I actually wanted the job, how I thought that we needed to restructure our company so that it could be successful in the next 20 years. And when I presented them to the, with the plan, they said, okay, we really like the plan, but you have to own the plan. You have to become CEO. So that was our journey. But I was very old in comparison no. to him when I took over. <laughs> so. She was very mature already. I wanted to do it earlier because you have to do this when you're strong. When you have a, a family uh, like ours, you have to be strong and you have to be decisive. And I wanted to be a very active chairman. So I wanted to see her work, develop, even have conflicts. If I had made a mistake, I could have told her, okay, we made a mistake. So far, 
no mistakes have been made. So far, so good. Yeah. And Adriana, when, as a young CEO, you have the benefit of having a very long-term perspective. And obviously, as a private company on top of that, with yep. a family dynamic, it's even an added edge, or uh, I'd say advantage, that uh, the Stenos Group has. So talk about how that informs your innovation, your development of businesses, and also tie it into the Cisneros Interactive Group, which you built up from the ground up, and how you need to have a long-term perspective really to take that journey. It's a really interesting topic, and rhythm and cycles is one of those conversations that's really fun to have with bankers because we tend to drive them absolutely crazy. You know, you and I talk about this all the time. I'm always playing the long game. And the long game for me is, I am thinking of the next 30, 40, and 50 years. That doesn't mean that I don't have a plan that's six months and a year in front of me. And with Interactive specifically, it's a really interesting place to explain that, right? So my Interactive business has a very short cycle. We invest and divest out of eight, 10, 12 companies every year. Because the technologies that we're working with and building up are changing every six months. So to keep fresh and on top of the game, we have to be able to move very, very quickly. That doesn't mean that I'm not thinking about the health of my overall company for the next 30 years. I report to my siblings, to my father, this is a family business that we intend to keep for a very long time. But I am certain that 30 years from now, my company is gonna look radically different from the company that I'm running today. And most people have a very hard time understanding how those two worlds can coexist. I really don't. What I like about being able to play the long game is that it makes you behave in a way that is what I believe the only way in the right way. When you know that you're going to be in the same neighborhood with your same neighbors playing the same game for the next 10, 20, and 30 years, you behave correctly, you invest in the well-being of your community, and you want to make sure that everything that you're doing is going to be good for everybody and all the stakeholders. The first time I met you, I was in the audience of a panel you are doing at the Paley Center, and you were asked about kind of models you're looking at, and you were the only one on the panel that said that you have a 20-year model. Yeah. And obviously we all say, who knows what happens in 20 years, but the fact that you have the luxury of thinking that far ahead maybe informs your capital deployment strategies and your investment strategies, for it sure. It certainly does. And I think, you know, for us, Latin America is really the region that I'm focused on. I think 80% of my business is in Latin America, and I'm very optimistic about our region. And Latin America does have cycles. It always has, and it always will. And when you can play the long game, it's much easier to feel comfortable in Latin America, especially when you have the benefit of being able to have offices in a lot of countries in Latin America. You can survive the cycles with a lot of peace instead of being really stressed out. And Adriana, we know if you look at any balance sheet of any U.S. or European corporation, where they really make their money is in Latin America. That's where the profits come from. Yeah. They lose it in the United States. They lose it in Europe. (laughs) They put it into China, they lose it. But where they make the money every year is in Latin America. So we know that. So we're in a safe continent. Please invest in Latin America. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about the economic and business opportunities that you see ahead now. What are you most excited about investing in for the next few decades here? Thank you. Yeah, so we are extremely optimistic about Latin America. We actually have offices in every single country in Latin America, which is amazing. I spend a lot of time, all my time on American Airlines. I have too many miles, which I'm not proud of. And our biggest offices are in Colombia and in Argentina. And I love spending time there. 
I would say, you know, what keeps me up at night is what's happening at home in Venezuela. And I think all of us here, what we have to do every day is to remember that it's our responsibility to defend the democratic principles that are the only principles by which we can ensure that the health of the continent stays in check. And it's in our hands to ensure that our continent stays healthy. It's a really, really exciting time. And the Hispanic market in the United States is a big part of that conversation. And the dialogue between the economy of the Hispanic market in Latin America is really, really exciting. So we think it's going to be an amazing couple of years ahead of us. And the silver lining is that we got you to be based in Miami and Coral Gables, and the company is obviously centered around Miami across the region. So thank you both for thank being you, here, Arie. and thank you for having us at the Emerge Conference. Thank you, Adi. And here's this week's quiz question. With the historic Brexit vote a year behind us and negotiations with the EU kicking off on June 19th, Let's take a look at how the UK market has performed since June 23rd, 2016. What was the return of the FTSE 100 as of June 19th, 2017? A, negative 16%, B, negative 7%, C, 8%, or D, 19%? Line Tree's Ed Vasey had a chance to catch up with one of London's first ever unicorn entrepreneurs, Brent Hoberman to discuss the UK startup scene and ask him the four questions. Hi, my name's Ed Vasey. I'm an executive in residence at Liontree and a former Minister for Technology in the UK government. I'm sitting in a very small pod uh, with a man called Brent Hobman, who I've known for many years. And uh, Brent is a sort of tech legend in the UK, if I can put it that way. He kind of started the first big internet tech company in the UK when he founded a firm called lastminute.com in 1998 at the tender age of 30 and sold it about eight years later 2006 for many hundreds of millions of pounds and then after selling his company he's obviously invested and created other companies but he's best known in the UK for establishing something called the Founders Forum which this month had its big conference in London. And the Founders Forum, set up 11 years ago, basically does what it says on the tin. It brings founders, tech founders, mainly from the UK and the US, but also Europe and other countries together to talk about tech trends and to network like crazy. And it's grown hugely. And it's now attended, obviously, by two or 300 of the top tech people from the US and the UK and Europe. And it happens all over the world now. And there'll be one in New York in October. Welcome, Brent. Thank you. Brent, you just want to set the scene a bit by talking a bit about Founders Forum and how it's grown and what it's been like this summer 2017. Yeah, so Founders Forum started after I sold lastminute.com for what was actually $1.1 billion. <laughs> so it was one of the early unicorns. And having sold it, I was at a Google event. And we then spoke about technology events and entrepreneurs meeting other entrepreneurs. I did it with, actually, initially the first people we did it with were Mark Sandwich, Johnny Goodwin, and Matthew Freud. We all set it up together. And in that first event, as I said, it was just 80 entrepreneurs at the Grove. And they were an amazing group of people. But what I learned there is if you just get this amazing group of people who've already been successful together, 
they act like all people do when they've just already been successful and there's not enough energy. So we learned quickly from that and then we introduced a talent track of young upcoming entrepreneurs who were genuinely excited to be in the room with these successful founders. So the 80 successful founders just like to sit around and shoot the breeze, so you had to introduce the younger people. Everybody in this world seeks relevance and even for these very successful founders, to compete on relevance is something that's more interesting than any other competition, actually. And then we said, well, actually, what do all these people also want to meet? They want to meet the big CEOs, particularly media and telco CEOs who they can do deals with. Ah. So we then since added on the CEOs of BT and Vodafone and most of the media companies. And it's that sort of cocktail mix that, that makes it... A, and and a what's the split? Is it mainly European with a bit of American or is it 50-50? Well, it depends where we are, obviously. So in New yeah. York, it, it's mainly actually American, but in, in the UK, it's still, it's probably 50-60% European and then rest of world. You know, repeat guests include the likes of Reid Hoffman and Eric Schmidt and a host of other sort of, and yes, we also added investors, as you said, most of the top investors from Silicon Valley would send a partner as How well. How do you, as someone who actually has to put their money where their mouth is and invest, decide what is the new new thing you know there's a famous story about michael linton deciding to back snap because his teenage daughter came home and said i love snap but uh how do you kind of try and stay relevant remaining curious I i think it's curiosity and actually i'm also the reason when i talk about why i got into this whole world of technology as a modern language graduate from oxford not a programmer it's just because i loved gadgets yeah so i still love gadgets and that means i sort of love the new new thing we get everyone in our community at Founders Forum, so the top entrepreneurs and the top venture capitalists and the top CEOs, to recommend who's the best young entrepreneur you've seen. So that's one way we do it. So it's definitely kind of word of mouth, yeah. getting around, peer reviewing. Peer reviewing, exactly. Yeah. Then we also have Founders of the Future, which is yeah. our event for young entrepreneurs where we actually, and people who are not yet entrepreneurs, so yeah. we try and get peer review and use big data and artificial intelligence to identify those people so we have that network then we have founders factory which is a new form of corporate backed incubator and accelerator backed by six large corporates so it's a series of things that hopefully keeps us plugged in and then the other thing is just being open to serendipity i will take random meetings you know i remember back in the day as you were talking about back in the day when i was trying to get do last minute comment trying to get meetings with travel industry people and whatever and big players it would take six months and i was like seriously are their diaries really like this <laughs> yeah. and some of them i'm sure they just didn't want to meet me but some of them i think it generally was the way people used to plan yeah. their diaries they didn't give time for yeah. that sort of serendipity moment of meeting somebody bright who just might be passing through town or for example there tends to be an emphasis too much i think perhaps in the uk on kind of B2C consumer stuff and not the kind of stuff that goes on in the background. But then again, deep mind and improbable yeah. have, I think, changed that yeah. perception. There are actually very serious tech companies now growing in the UK. Yeah, and we had um, EV, which founder William Tunstopedo, who sold his business to become the core of Amazon Alexa out of Cambridge. You've got a whole wave of things that companies. There's another one called Prowler, which is an AI company that Herman Hauser is particularly excited about. We've got 5.ai, which is Stan Boland's, I think, third company that is going to change autonomous cars, again, coming out of Cambridge. And we've got that whole med tech cluster of sort of the Oxford nanopores and the, the genetic sequencing companies and all of those. And then the UK will be good at that data abstraction layer. And as you said, all that AI expertise and great universities here, I think, at trying to make sense of all that data. Europe is good at that. I think where does the UK deserve to create global winners where maybe it hasn't yet enough? Well, we've spoken yeah. about 
Health tech, I still think that's got to be one where working off one of the biggest employers in the world with the NHS, there's exactly. got to be more that could be done. We're actually doing a health tech event the day after Founders Forum with the CEO of the NHS to bring startups together with the NHS and to try and help bridge that link. We actually weirdly now have colleagues you, uh, who are trying to do GovTech, obviously. So let's yeah. see the next phase in GovTech is another, I think, legitimate area that's ripe for innovation. The next wave of innovation, to some sense, I said Steve Case summarized it better than I can, but it is where the entrepreneurs now have to work out how to work in a regulatory system yeah. and not ask for permission later. So Uber, Airbnb famously succeeded by asking for permission later and breaking yeah. the rules. Yeah. I did it myself in a small way, not as big yeah. as them, unfortunately, but we... <laughs> broke the law with screen scraping EasyJet and Ryanair flights and yeah. technically I was in breach of the Computer Misuse of Information Act and I could have been in prison yeah. but you say so you take those risks in I, I think that's a world exclusive that's a world exclusive <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. but the statute of limitations has yeah, passed I hope so, yeah. <laughs> so I want to quickly ask you the Lion Tree four questions what is the thing that you believe in that other people don't I believe that we will look back at things like robotic restaurants and not look in fear of them, but think, why did we ever think that this wasn't going to be the norm? Exactly. And so the reason I would say that is because when you tell people you're going to launch a robotic restaurant, as I do, they say, oh, that's awful, aren't people social and whatever. You're like, we're still going to have people in the restaurant, Muppet. Um, one. Uh, secondly, you say, are robots going to be more consistent than average chefs? Of course. Can you then do things like personalized nutrition and make people healthier? Of course. Can you lower costs? So in other words, make people happier, able to eat healthier food? Of course. Can you be more environmentally friendly? Of course. So I think that those are the sorts of things that when you describe it to people without giving them the sort of diatribe I've just given you, their initial reaction is, that's never going to work. Yeah. Whereas in 10 years' time, you're going to be talking to the robot restaurant king. Cool. Excellent. What is the best business advice? you've ever been given and who gave it to you i guess with hindsight one of the best pieces of business advice was look after your board Ooh, nice. so i think when you are working so hard and you're quite confident as an entrepreneur in your capabilities and the media is telling you you're quite good you then are so focused on doing deals building the business that you can forget to make sure the board understands what you're doing and why you're doing it. Although obviously board meetings are for that, but I think you have to work between board meetings. And is there a particular technology company that you admire? It'll be a cliche, but I'll explain why. Google, for their ability to continue to innovate, I think they're restructuring to Alphabet and recognizing that attracting and retaining talent as being part of such a big juggernaut was going to be a problem. So spinning it, so giving people their own independent autonomous units yeah. would be a brilliant way of getting entrepreneurs there. So I think Google have always tried that, and I think they realized that they reached a scale where that wasn't sort of working, and then they launched this new thing. So if we're sitting here in 10 years' time, what are the things we might be talking about? How do we help stop the unemployment that technology will inevitably create? So the big debate is, will this revolution be different? I think it will be a bit different. I think there's going to be, best case, massive dislocation of jobs over a period of time. Now, whether we can then find new things. And I think one of the bigger issues is, can we help people gain more respect and dignity in their lives, not being judged by what they do every day, not being judged by their job, because it's going to be harder and harder for them to find satisfying jobs? Yeah. Great. Thank you. And here's the answer to this week's quiz question. 
What was the return of the FTSE 100 as of June 19, 2017? A, negative 16%, B, negative 7%, C, 8%, or D, 19%? And the answer is D, 19%. The FTSE 100 is up significantly in the past year, aided by a drop in the sterling, down about 14% against the dollar, that helps multinational companies. Likewise, the FTSE 250, a mid-cap index which has higher exposure to the UK economy with approximately 60% of revenues coming from Britain, has returned 15% since the Brexit vote. Taking a look at select TMT constituents of the FTSE 100, Sky is up over 7%, Vodafone is up 2%, Relex is up about 38%, and WPP is up over 5% since Brexit. Given its relatively higher exposure to the domestic UK market, the FTSE 250 in particular may be more volatile in the near to medium term. We hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review at iTunes. It helps other people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening, and see you next time. Audiation.